Hey, hey. Hey, how's it going? Hey, good morning. Good morning. FYI, I'm recording already. Sure. I don't want to forget. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we do the whole thing and you didn't record it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry yeah, again for rescheduling. Yeah, no, no, wor no worries. Thanks. I think uh, doing stuff when, you know, when it works out is best. Yeah, for sure. How old's your son? He's three, and he's just been getting super bored at home. That must be, yeah. must be crazy. Yeah, and he has, like, sensory needs. So we, usually we would take him out every day, basically, to, uh -huh. to park for a few hours or just, you know, to, like, test in Marketplace or whatever it is. And now he's just cooped up at home and bouncing off the walls, and <laughs> we're, like, trying to come up with new things to do. That's rough. Yeah. Okay, just let me pull uh, one more document. <coughs> sure. I so when I was looking around, I found a recording that you had made on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, with the young man, I believe his name is Chris. Okay. Who, who is that young man? Chris. Uh, Adam? The Asian? Yeah, Adam. Adam. Oh, Adam. Uh, oh, the Asian one was, that's not his name. It's been a while since I even, Albert. Albert? Albert. Albert, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. What was, what was that all about? So that was a few years ago. He has um, his own, like, he has a resource where he, where he tries to put together, um, I believe, like just employment opportunities, like job listings. Mm -hmm. And he has like a Facebook page. And I, I'm not, I haven't been in touch with him for a few years. But when I was in touch with him, I know he had a Facebook page and he would um, encourage his followers to check out those job postings and like kind of try to connect them to jobs that they might be interested in. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that is something and he's was he on the spectrum? He, he was on the spectrum, that. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you guys were talking about um being overly obsessive in conversations. I don't even remember. So that was that. interesting. So I call I call my brain like pre-pregnancy and post-pregnancy, like things that happened before my pregnancy, I don't even remember clearly anymore really yeah i mean but i had you know. a really traumatic pregnancy though i was on bed rest for the full nine months but like it oh, really wow. has like affected my memories i don't like i mean i remember having these conversations and i know we did like a little series uh when i was when i talked with him but um mm -hmm. i don't remember the actual conversations that's interesting i 
I have a, a cousin and she told me that post, so pre-pregnancy growing up, she had a lot of uh, migraines. Yeah. And after that, like the <clears throat> migraines went, went away. So that's interesting. That's I find it very interesting. I've had like yeah. nonstop migraines since after my pregnancy. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Um, almost ready. Yeah. All right. Um, so just a, a quick, I'm going to edit it, right? So sure. if at any point you feel like something is, you know, um, you don't like the way you said it or you want to uh, like start all over, just say, I'm, I'm going to start all over. And that'll okay. be my cue to re, uh, to chop that piece out and then, um, and then clean it up. Okay. So that's number one. Um, number two, um, I'm going to send it to you, you know, before, before finalizing. Okay. And then if, you know, if I, then you can listen to it. Um, and if at any point you don't feel comfortable with anything, just let me know and I'll cut it out. Okay. You know, um, there's no reason why anything should be recorded or on recording that you don't feel comfortable with. Got it. Thank you. Um, and Thank just for the, awesome though. And for the record, I'm a, I'm a little nervous myself. I've 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 interviewed a bunch of people. I interview parents all the time. I talk to parents like on a regular, right? Yeah. You know, you, you know, running a, a a practice. You know, that's like one of the main things they do, doing FBAs and stuff like that. And then you know, I have that. I've been started a podcast about two months ago with yeah, awesome. uh, my fraternity brothers, and just to, so I've been interviewing them. But I've never this. You're my first interview with someone in the field. I mean, I talk to a lot of people, but. Well, think of me as another parent because I'm I'm also a parent. So there you go. <laughs> that works out. <laughs> um, yeah. So it should. Um, uh, I'll clean it up as as much as needed. Sounds good. All right. So let me make sure that I'm recording. <coughs> I am recording. Right. Uh, so so tell us about yourself. Uh, let's include some steps in your career to brought that brought you to the place that you're in now like how did you get to where you're at so yeah sure. yeah so it's funny because when I was in high school I was very quiet and so people would tell me you'd be a great psychologist you're such a good listener so I started taking some psychology classes and I really enjoyed them and so I was like all right I'm gonna go into psychology I didn't know exactly what aspect of psychology I wanted to go into. Um, and then when I got to my master's program in psychology and I was actually taking counseling courses where they're teaching you how to counsel others, I realized I was not a good listener. I just was a bad talker. Like it takes me some time to articulate my thoughts. I do better when I'm writing my thoughts than when I'm verbally speaking them. And so I was like, okay, counseling, I don't know if I can do this. This is a lot that, that um, that therapists have to, to juggle while they're listening to you. They're, they're doing all sorts of other things too, right? Uh, so I thought about sports psychology. I thought about, I dabbled in forensic psychology for a while, which was very interesting, but too overwhelming. 
Um, and then industrial organizational psychology, but just couldn't get into that. And then one summer, I did an internship at Pyramid Autism Center. Did you have you heard of that place? No. It's Tell in me Orange, but it. it closed. It closed down now. But okay. that was my first experience working with students on the spectrum, and I just loved working with the students. And so after that, I was set in the behavior analysis um, track. So that's how I got into behavior analysis. I worked at Autism Spectrum Therapies for a while um, while I was doing my BCBA coursework and, thing, and supervised hours, things like that. And I, I noticed that most of the parents I worked with asked me the same question. What's going to happen to my kid when I'm not around? So a lot of services, as you know, stopped getting funding at the age of 22, right? And there's a few adult services, adult support specialists, things like that. But I couldn't find anything, uh, any programs that that my my that the majority of my clients might benefit from. So I decided to try to create a program, which is what brought me to Spectrum Success. And I was kind of created a program that looked at a student's strengths and interests, and how can we take those strengths and interests and create a, a career trajectory for them. However, because of lack of funding, again, a huge problem in our, in our field, I didn't get very far with that. And I decided that this would be a good opportunity for me. I just, I realized how much more there is to learn. I, le I realized how much more research needs to be done um, when supporting adults as they transition to adulthood, to college, to employment to living on their own sometimes for the first time. Uh, and so that's what brought me to where I am right now. I'm in my final year of my dissertation program in, or my dissertation, my PhD program. Um, I'm working on my dissertation. Clearly that's <laughs> what's on my brain right now. Um, and uh, in education and disability studies, which has actually given me kind of a flip, um, a different perspective on disability than my psychology training in the past. And so it's What's been- What's that? Can you tell me about that perspective? Um, sure, yeah. So, so in my psychology training, it's, there's a lot of emphasis on the medical model of disability in which um, differences are usually pathologized, pathologized, I can't say that word, pathologized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, we're looking at say something like autism and trying to figure out how do we fix these behaviors, right? And then the disability studies model comes in and it's more of an emphasis on the social model of disability, which is that we all have differences and we all need supports, but what turns a difference into a disability is uh, the societal understanding, the societal and cultural attitudes towards that difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, because because in ABA or as BCBAs, what we think about, we think about maladaptive behavior or lack of functional behavior, and we work on fixing, quote unquote, fixing the behaviors or just making or replacing those behaviors with more adaptable behaviors. And what you're yeah. saying is um, the disability model is more of an understanding of, of the disability as a whole. And what I'm hearing is how someone fits in to society with as a result of having those disabilities, but also 
realizing that every individual, you know, you and I included, has some level of disability or or lack of ability. I guess we could say both, um, and and yeah. we function within society. Yeah, and so 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 from the social model of disability, there's something called like the neurodiversity paradigm. Have you heard of neurodiversity? Yeah. And so what? But tell me a little is, bit. Tell me tell me a little bit about neurodiversity for those that um, don't know the the like the movement. Sure, sure. Yeah. So neurodiversity uh, can says that autism can be thought of just as a neurocognitive variation. So that doesn't mean that it's negative, and it doesn't have to imply medical pathology. Rather, it's just another person who brings in their own set of expertise, experiences and value to society, right? So it's just a difference, not a deficit, Okay. basically. And so, and also another thing that the social model of disability does that I like is that it focuses on working with society as much as the individual who needs our supports, right? So I'm not saying that just because you have autism or any other difference, you don't need supports for that. Sure, you may need supports. We all need some sort of supports in life, right? But it's a matter of also working with the rest of society to make sure that we are all more inclusive and understanding of people with differences. So the social model of of disabilities is understanding the individual, understanding that everybody has some level of disability. And within that understanding, also... um, uh, having as a result of that understanding and society having that understanding then society could make adjustments to include individuals uh, at a higher rate is what you're saying yeah exactly so think about uh, I'll give you an example so when I was living in New York uh, the school that I was working at with elementary age students um, on the spectrum we would go out for outings and practice just typical life skills like going grocery shopping And so one goal that we did was we were trying to teach our students how to use money, how to get the correct amount of money out based on how much you were buying, what you were buying and get the correct amount out and get your change, put it in your wallet and then be on your way, right? That's a pretty um, common life skill goal that we might use for some of our clients, right? Mm -hmm. And so we worked really hard on that. But then we did a survey of um, other grocery store uh, people who were getting their groceries on how that went for them. And um, if that was odd, did it, okay, can we recut this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to think about how to say this. Okay, let me just, let me start here, restart here. Okay, so we did a survey with, um, with other people who were getting groceries and things like that to get their opinion on um, if if it seemed like everything went smoothly with our students. And what we found there, the the survey, what the survey showed us was that they didn't care if our students were perhaps hand flapping or talking loudly to themselves or doing any of these other behaviors in public that sometimes we would consider maladaptive, right? We would usually be looking to for replacement behaviors, right, for that. What they were concerned about in New York was that it took the students too long to take the money out of their wallet, 
figure out the correct change, get the change, put it back away. Like all that process, the whole process in New York where everyone seems to be in a rush all the time, they didn't care about any anything else. They were just like, it just took way too long and I was in line for too long and I don't have time for this. So what we did with that information was we went back and we taught them and said how to use a credit card. <laughs> okay. And, and so, you know what? I think that's interesting just because I, a lot of times as in practice, in ABA practice, early intervention practice, we focus so much on some of like the hand flapping or, exactly. I mean, there's some behaviors that we have to focus on. I think like SIB is very important. Yeah. And so the way I like behavior. to differentiate it is, is it a safety concern right. or is it, you know, something to do with personal hygiene, something like that, that's in the, the well-being and the health of our clients. Otherwise, why don't we focus more of our attention on teaching people in general that hand flapping is not a big deal. I actually tried it a few times and it feels really good. I actually now just do it because it feels <laughs> like a good stretch. And so, you know, if that's something that helps our clients regulate their own sensory needs and experiences, why are we teaching them to do something else instead, instead of teaching the general public to just be accepting of that behavior? You know, I'm fully on board with that. I think it's, it's, I, I have had a hard time with dealing with, with behavior that's self-stimulatory in the sense yeah. that, um, should I, like, I, I take an introspective look at myself and I think, should I really even address this behavior? Right. Um, this person really likes to do it. It's not really, you know, getting in the way of anything. I mean, people might be looking, but who cares? You know, exactly. at some point, who cares? It makes it makes this person, you know, the person I'm working with feel comfortable. And if and if it makes them feel comfortable, it keeps them collected. You know, I, you know, fine. You know, mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, go ahead. Sorry. In what you're saying, like my thought, my first thought is let's work on changing of the, the behavior of the people who are looking. Right. Right. And so that's what the social model of of disabilities um, focuses on is making, uh, having people look at disabilities a different way. And just what you're saying is just um, informing people a lot more, making the, making the environment more inclusive. And part yeah. of making the environment more inclusive is, is a whole lot of awareness, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. That's really interesting. And what's yeah. your, um, what's your dis dissertation on, if I may ask? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I haven't gotten my elevator pitch down yet, but it basically, in a nutshell, is I am looking at the lived experiences of uh, adults on the spectrum. Uh, so the way I'm doing that is I have a friend and former colleague, Adam, and I spent the last over two years chatting with him and collecting his stories. And I took those stories and I put it into kind of a I took those conversations basically and put it into a story form so that people can just read about his life and take away what they they will from that. And then I also found about 25 other autobiographies written by um, individuals on the spectrum. And I'm reading and analyzing those to see any common themes that come up um, for these individuals as and, and their journey through autism through adulthood and how we can use their experiences and the knowledge that, that we're getting directly from them in better supporting them in the future, right? Because right now I think that 
when it comes to adulthood, we think about employment, we think about maybe independent living skills, we think about um, relationships, but that's about all. And I think that there's that just barely scratches the surface, you know, that there's a lot that I'm, that I'm learning about that I think can be incorporated into, into future support systems as, as the need for those supports is finally becoming more transparent. Right. So through, through reading, through reading the, um, these, uh, these autobiographies, you're, you're expecting some themes to come up as far as what the needs are for individuals with developmental disabilities or autism and or autism. And as a result of that, then you can kind of further formulate uh, what your dissertation is going to be on. Okay, Um, I need you to do my elevator pitch, please, because that was much better than my rambling. I'm pretty good. I I just, I guess just, you know, I'm just summarizing. (laughs) You know, I think that's really good because... Um, you talked about, um, well, you made a statement towards the end there where a lot of it is concerned about employment relationships Mm -hmm. and independent living, but what about everything else? You know, is, you know, because people are 360 individuals, you know, we're three dimensional and those are not just the three things that we kind of concern ourselves with. Um, I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. And, and, and instead of, um, making, I think making assumptions, you know, making assumptions of what is best for a population. You're looking, you're, you're working and you're looking into a population, studying the population. And then as a result, um, looking to create some level of intervention for people. Exactly. Because what is, who are the biggest stakeholders in our services? The child, the child, the adult. And and if their voices are not heard, then is anything that we're doing really that meaningful? Social, social validity. That's what I heard. Exactly. And, and, oh, I also want to point out that my dissertation, I'm doing it in a completely non-academic format. I'm going to be um, publishing it as a book. And Adam, who I um, spent so many years chatting with, he's going to be a co-author. And I think that that's very important as well is we need to create platforms for individuals to be able to share their stories and experiences so that we can utilize them in our future support services. And um, Adam is a, uh, he's an adult on the spectrum? Yes, he is. He is just turned 37 recently. And um, I knew him since I started Spectrum Success. He emailed me a few months after I started um, and ended up becoming my marketing intern and he now has been working at a full-time job though for the last three years which he's been doing really great at and he's enjoying that and so yeah that it's you know it started off as kind of a a colleague relationship and now we are friends and we hang out whenever we can with COVID it's been hard but I just saw him last week to celebrate his birthday um but yeah so it's it I've learned a lot from him and I hopefully I've I've been able to give him a platform to, t- to share his story because he wants to help others like him who have felt isolated or misunderstood growing up. That's awesome. That's so, that's awesome. I worked with adults for the first six years uh, oh, yeah? in ABA. And I th- think 
I, I worked with a lot of clients that were my age at the time that were mm-hmm. high functioning that had what, what is, what is deemed to be, you know, Asperger's at the time, Asperger's still right. had his, had his own classification. <clears throat> and I think that a lot of me personal, a lot of my personal growth happened through those years. I worked with, you know, individuals that were like my age that were on the spectrum, had high fun- high functioning autism or Asperger's, whatever, you know, however you, uh, society labels it. And um, it was, I worked with a lot of very introspective individuals where I just learned and took a different perspective on life. So I think the fact that you're working with a, an adult um, that that has been identified as having high functioning autism to 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 work on this on essentially like life skills and everything after you know 22 years old yeah. um, and supporting individuals is awesome. I think that's that's incredibly awesome. Um, again, using that voice to to create some sort of intervention and at the same time in not not like a like a cookie cutter intervention but just yeah. you know this it's like a starting point right yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. okay um what are some aspirations you have uh for the future uh as related to your career when when you're retired if you decide to retire what would you have wanted to accomplish within your career oh wow okay um well i think first I would want to see. I want to. I would want to help um, affect some policy policy change. I would want to see uh, transition planning incorporated as a part of IEPs for all students who are receiving IEPs. Right, um, starting in at least the freshman year of high school. I think right now transition planning, when it starts, it's it's too late, uh, and it's very basic. And I think that you need a lot more. Um, you need educational support, you need community support, you need employment support. There's so many factors of creating an actual transition team. And so I wanna see that become the norm. Um, and when you're talking about employment, I think that some something that's interesting is that it's not enough to just look for what job the individual might need now, but you need to integrate labor market data. So we need to see um, what the projections are for the type of job. Okay, wait, can we cut? Yeah. (laughs) I like have this on the, I just was reading another paper last night and so I'm trying to like incorporate that. Okay. Okay, okay, let's keep the policy part. And then, okay, here we can start again now. Uh, and then also just including employment, uh, like career trajectory planning, and an emphasis on self-autonomy and developing the skills to be self-autonomous within that transition planning. I think that that would be great. And when I say policy change also, I think policy change is not enough. I think there is policy. There are policies right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are, are there policies right now um, about transition planning? Um, I'm not very well versed on IEPs, so I don't know exactly when, when it starts or, or when f- it's supposed to start. It's been a few years since I have, have done transition plan, uh, since I've done an IEP, but in the research I've come across, it talks about how transition planning should start at least at age 14, if okay. not in middle school, but I don't see that being implemented or at mm-hmm. least not when I was, um, when I was doing IEPs, right. It's kind of like a oh, you're a junior or a senior, are you now going to be applying for colleges or are you going to 
be going to a trade school or are you going to be um, joining some sort of employment support program, something like that. And by that time, it's too late because then you're just looking at what can this person do right now in a job rather than looking for a career plan. What are this person's strengths? What are their interests? Let's capitalize on those things so that that person can then find a career that they can grow into on, in the long term, not just a short-term job to satisfy the transition and IEP process. Uh, because essentially, what if if we don't look at it at an early enough age, then um, we're just setting them up for a job that may be temporary and it exactly. doesn't necessarily have a future within the market. And exactly. if we're looking at things that like at 14, um, then we can start building some of those skills that are going to be long-term skills that are going to be um, serve, that are going to be, uh, have high utility within the, within the labor market in the long-term. Absolutely. Okay. That's, that's awesome. I, I think that's great. I, I, I I'm, I'm hundred percent with that just because, um, it should be at around 14. It should be at a younger age. And I think there should be more integration between, um, uh, ABA providers and, um, IEPs as far as transitions and, Absolutely. and how we're, how we're preparing individuals to be independent within their lives. Yeah. And it has to be a collaborative process between not only just behavior analysts and the educational team, but also within the community, uh, employers have to set up internships, give students a chance to, you know, get their feet wet and, and really understand different positions in different industries. And I mean, there's just, there's so much, I could talk about this for like an hour, but yeah, there, there has to be some sort of, um, there has to be some sort of program that incorporates, incorporates all of these factors, working one-on-one -on -one with with the adolescents on the spectrum, but also with the community members, with the schools, with the employers, with the colleges. Because we can only do so much as practitioners in schools. Exactly. And if in society, people aren't as aware, again, to the social model of, of disabilities, then they're not necessarily going to create these opportunities or build these systems within um, their organizations to be able to intake individuals with div different developmental disabilities, in this case, autism, um, and be exactly. able to support them. Yeah. Okay. So like, for example, like we, we spend so much time working on, you know, um, employment skills or life skills with our clients, but yet their rates for unemployment are so high. So what's going on, right? We, I think we need to spend more time also working with employers so that we can meet each other halfway because otherwise, you know, our, our clients are putting in so much time and so much work and effort, but they're still, far, far underemployed, far more underemployed than the general population. And as a result of all the time and effort that we're spending through education and ABA programs, are the, are the, are the benefits actually there? Exactly. You know, like there's exactly. a high cost, but is the benefit, is there a high return on, on that, on that cost? Exactly. And I don't, I, and I think part of the reason is not necessarily because we're teaching the wrong skills, but we're targeting the wrong audience. Or well, not the wrong audience, but we need to target an additional audience. I think that's a, I think that's a, I think your point was, was, was well put with 
the wrong audience. I can't, again, <laughs> like the social model of, of disabilities exactly. to be able to inform people and, and, and have more well aware of individuals on a spectrum. If they're stimming, if, you know, they're behaving a little differently, if, you know, you're not, uh, if you're not, um, if eye contact isn't being reciprocated or it, you know if conversations are a little kind of like one-sided or there some there seems to be a a theme in the conversation and like you know and the conversation keeps on leading to the same topic you know these are all indicators of individuals you know with uh behaviors that individuals with autism may exhibit and it's okay Exactly. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, okay. So let me. Um, so you wrote. Uh, you 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 co-authored a paper developing employment environments where individuals with ASD thrive. Yes. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about why it's important to employ individuals on the autism spectrum. Yes. First of all, shout out to the co-authors, Dr. Griffiths, Dr. Hurley Hansen, and Dr. Gian Antonio from all from Chapman. Um, so, like I said before, right? We have our clients on the spectrum working so incredibly hard to to accommodate to the demands of a work environment. So, so now we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to make this transition easier for them? Um, and so, for anyone, not just people on the spectrum, retaining long-term employment helps to ensure a better quality of life personal satisfaction, um, you're making a valuable contribution to society, to the company, to uh, you're, you're one step closer to living independently if that's what's important to you. And so I think that it's important to em employ individuals on the spectrum, but what this paper was looking at is basically from the employer's perspective, employers who are hiring people on the spectrum and employers who are not hiring people on the spectrum, where's, what's the gap? What's, um, what are characteristics of the, what are practices and policies of the employers who are hiring? And what are the concerns of those who are not hiring these neurodiverse employees? And so understanding these things will hopefully help us create uh, programs better tailored to support employers to hire our clients. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah. I think in at the in your literature review or in in some background review that you guys did, there was um, there was some concerns that in the, that some employers had with regard to employing individuals um, diagnosed with autism. Um, talk to us about some of those concerns. Yeah. So some big ones were potential legal risks or the time and effort to um, supervise and train employees with autism, safety issues, financial burdens of accommodations, um, believing that, again, for legal reasons, they might never be able to terminate an employee with autism once they were hired. Um, you know, these, are, and all, these are all perceived, um, perceived risks. These are not necessarily true, but this is, these are what the employers were concerned about. Um, so basically, you know, some more were basically, there was a lot about providing accommodations, concerns about high cost, low productivity, and high turnover, um, and how to provide the correct supports, things like that. But I want to point out that the research shows 
that when comparing uh, employees with autism to employees without autism, that employees with autism actually performed at an above standard level when talking about um, attention to detail and work ethic and quality of work, and that employers do not actually need to spend additionally for employees with autism any more than any other new employee. Um, and so while employees with autism might require some workplace modifications or supervision and training, there's actually no significant difference between them and their colleagues concerning weekly employment or supervision or training costs. Okay. I think the part that you mentioned that was really important, and I think your paper also goes, talks a little bit about, um, definitely talks about uh, the attention to detail and even um, just attendance, just normal attendance, just like higher attendance. And just um, there are some tasks that individuals with autism really do enjoy. You know, and and sometimes those tasks can uh, are repetitive tasks. And the and and what I have found, I did some job coaching. Um, I used to work with individuals, you know, at different sites, even within the what what's perceived um, as repetitive tasks. Individuals, at a lot of time, oftentimes looked at it differently and even improved processes, um, yeah. which was uh, which was interesting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, I really do understand that, um, and I think it's really important. I think uh, we are in a legit, litigious society, and I think that's a little bit rough. Um, but at the same time, I think creating the systems, like you said, again to the point of of the social model of of, of disabilities, creating these systems, um, it we have a higher probability of success. You know, Absolutely, if we create these yeah. internships and, and all of this, and we, we are training people at, at like, uh, like 14 years old and starting te start teaching individuals and guiding them in the direction of a career. Um, so with regard to, um, can you speak to economic out outcomes of hiring and not hiring individuals with, with autism? What do you, what do you think the, um, the outcomes are if, if, uh, there was a, there was a number on your, um, yeah. on your study where half of the individuals with autism are going to age out to, to be within the workforce within the next couple of years. Let's talk a little bit about that. And then the out, some outcomes of not hiring individuals with autism. Sure. Yeah. So first off, I mean, if you're not hiring individuals with autism or, you know, just neurodiverse individuals, then we, we don't have a fully inclusive society. I think that as society, we've learned to fear what we don't understand. We've learned to turn a difference into a deficit when instead we can and should be focusing on the strengths and many individual talents that employees with autism can, br can bring to the workplace, right? And um, you touched on a few of these right now and I just wanna expand on, on those strengths again, because I think it's important for when, when we're talking to businesses, we have to speak the business language, right? So like you started mentioning, um, paying a close attention to detail, enjoying certain tasks that other employees might find repetitive or socially isolating, and then bringing in a different perspective on issues, which allows for innovative solutions to common problems. Um, and then when we're talking again about the, the business perspective, employees with autism have been found to have fewer absences and are more likely to arrive at work on time than other employees. And also 
employees with autism have dramatically lower turnover rates than neurotypical employees. That's huge, right? Because turnover is actually a large expense for organizations. So hiring someone with autism has far more benefits than it does challenges. Um, and now what, let's get into to some numbers, right? So we're talking about all these strengths that these employees can bring, uh, the benefits to your company, to society, but still people with autism are far underemployed or unemployed. Uh, so right now there are 3.5 million people with autism in the US. According to the National Autistic Society, um, and this is a stat from 2016, but unemployment statistics show that 85% of adults with autism are currently unemployed. And the biggest reasons for that are shown to be employers' attitudes and perceptions towards people with disability, as well as organizational practices and policies. And so um, you were talking about the economic outcomes of hiring and not hiring uh, people with autism, right? Right. Okay. So how much do you think the U how much do you think autism services cost US citizens annually? If you if you could guess a number. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. How Just much guess. is it? Just guess. Uh a hundred million, no, a hundred billion dollars. hundred million dollars, something real so high. So currently autism services cost US citizens somewhere between between 236 to 262 billion dollars annually and by 2025 this number is expected to rise to 1 trillion dollars annually and oh wow yeah so currently for the 236 to 262 billion the majority of costs are actually in adult services 165 wow. to 196 billion of that range is adult services so it would it would stand uh, it would st it does make a whole lot of sense to build those skills at fourteen, work with individuals, create these opportunities for them, and instead of spending money on support, you're putting money into the um, into the economy because individuals that work are individuals with money in their pocket and are individuals that are going to pay stuff out. So instead yeah, exactly. of so so. So it would make the most sense right now, the, the funding is there until, for services until age 22. So let's start working on these things in adolescence when we have a few years where we can support that transition and the um, career stability for our clients. And then we also have to get, uh, I think, I, you know, I know change is hard and we don't want to take away supports that people have currently, but we can get creative too. So for example, a lot of people receive social security incomes, right? And that I'm not saying to take that away, but what if we channel some of the money that goes towards social security income to create a program that's actually effective to supporting our clients and gaining long-term employment and careers so that these individuals can can feel confident um, that they can support themselves through employment rather than social security income, right? Like what, but we're, we're taking the money from that program and investing in our clients. That's not what's being done right now, right? I'm just throwing out like an idea, but right. I mean, I, hopefully there will be lots more funding sources in the future, but um, 
there needs to be more of an investment in our clients and at an earlier age. Okay. Um, I think you hit on two points. Um, uh, I do want to talk about comp- uh, with regards to company structure, uh, policies and practices. Bef- uh, before I hit that point, I, w- I would like to ask you this. Um, what do you think the role of a behavior analyst is um, within an in-home, in-home uh, practice or in-home services um, when it comes to uh, preparing individuals diagnosed with autism for with some of these skills, what do you? What should a behavior analyst that's listening right now? Uh, what what should their takeaway be? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, it's hard because when, like, I'm just thinking back to my, and I haven't worked um, just doing direct ABA intervention for about five years now. So I'm just thinking back to when I was getting trained as a behavior analyst. We were focusing on real-time goals and skills, right? We were not really thinking about employment or the future. Um, but so what I, what I think I would, I would tell ABA practitioners right now is expand your education. ABA is one form of support, but educate yourself on other um, practices, on legislation, on, on the policies that, um, that your clients are going to go into that don't necessarily affect them now, but might affect them 10 years down the line. How can we think about those in our current goals for our students, for our clients? Um, And then something else I I really want to touch on is um, if you could take one actionable step, right? I would say include your client in your next meeting about goals and treatment planning, or just next week when you go see them, just have a conversation if you're able to and ask about their experiences. Find out what's important to them and make sure that information is then somehow used to best support them in their treatment. Because no textbook can teach us what we can learn directly from the lived experiences of our clients again to that social model and kind of along the lines of what you're doing right now is is reading these autobiographies and from that you know uh, incorporating um what you're learning into your dissertation at, with regard to um the future of of services for individuals when once they're adults no yeah i think that's really important that's extremely important um and i think it may be a little uh tougher with some kids um, just, or with some individuals, just because they might not, they might not be at the developmental level, um, to, to kind of give you some feedback in, in, in that area. Um, but even then, I think, uh, a little bit of what you're taught, uh, talk, touching on and kind of talking about is, is, is a topic that I've most recently kind of, uh, not haven't necessarily read about, but I've heard about a little bit more often mm-hmm. is assent, more so assent and more and essentially kind of you get consent, you know, to provide services, but do you have assent from the from the patient or the individual, the participant, patient, client, consumer, um, to actually provide the service um, and and to to engage with you as opposed to just um, you know. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of forcing the individual to be part of it, you know? That's so interesting. And yeah, I think that goes back to the just self-autonomy, 
Right. How, you know, everyone needs some level of support and in life, but we typically have a say in those supports, but do our clients. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, that's such an interesting point. Yeah. And I think I do, I do need to do more research on that because I, I think it's a topic that's coming up a lot more often um, because just as practitioners, it's very easy to manipulate environments. It's very easy to, to do a whole lot of different things, but are we, are, are, are we in, uh, manipulating the environment or doing every, you know, uh, adjusting variables with the best interest of the client um, and their, their input to a certain degree. It, it, it gets a lot more complicated because it's not that easy anymore yeah, at that point. And I know? think that's what, you know, it's easy for us to chat about it, but when we're um, in black and white terms, but when you were actually in the practice and I'm sure many ABA practitioners feel the same way, it's not as black and white. It's, it's, you know, how do, how do you apply that, you know, exactly. at different, different levels? Okay. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about this uh, with regard to company structure policies and practices. What are some characteristics of companies that your study found to be associated with employing individuals uh, with autism? Um, I think, so there was two, uh, there was two clusters. I, and then there was, I think it was cluster one and cluster five um, with regard to companies. Uh, I, do believe that cluster five had uh, had more individuals um, employed um, that were on the spectrum as compared to um, cluster one? How did how did those clusters, the companies, compare with regard to their structure, policies, and practices? Yeah. So uh, basically, what we did is we broke up the the business responses um, from employers into five different clusters, and we compared the two clusters that seemed to be at the uh, most extreme ends, right? The ones who had the most employees with autism and the ones who, who did not, who had the least amount of employees with autism. And so what we saw in cluster five, which is the ones who had the most employees with autism hired, were first of all, accommodations need to begin during the hiring process, not after the person has been hired. Uh, and so going to this point, many organizations will probably benefit from using a support specialist in the hiring process. I think more and more businesses are starting to use support specialists um, in their daily for their daily employment needs, but starting that during the hiring process might be a, a better idea. Um, and then it tended to be larger companies who were hiring more, more individuals with autism, but that could just simply be that one, they need more employees because they're a larger company, or they have more resources to put towards neurodiverse hiring and retention. Because, oh, that's another thing too, right? Hiring is one thing, but then what about the retention piece? And so those who uh, retain more of their employees, they tended to provide their employees with autism more opportunities for professional growth. They were responsive and supportive to disability disclosure during the interview process. They created incentives to work at their companies by offering things like credit-based internships for employees with autism. They had purposeful initiatives to hire employees with autism. They had spe specific initiatives to hire employees with autism to create a more inclusive workplace because specifically they recognized the skills of their employees with autism. And they realized that having a more neurodiverse employment would would lead to an increase in the company's reputation benefits as well, and would ultimately, like we discussed before, decrease employee turnover. Um, okay. 
And then some of these things seem kind of obvious, but providing accommodations or having relationships with community organizations that promote the employment of people with autism and having relationships with universities. So there's kind of like a bridge program. All of these things um, increase the likelihood of successful hiring and retention within the workplace. So some things that that employers could do is number one, have a designated person that is res- responsible for the success of individual of neurodiverse individuals yeah, or just yeah. individuals in general. And that's some, that would be someone in HR um, and and uh, build it into their practice and build it into their hiring practices, even in the sense, I think there was something that you, uh, that the study mentions where even accommodations for like interviews exactly. or just having an understanding of different social uh, circumstances that may impact an individual diagnosed with autism and how, what their performance may be as a result. Right. So their performance and in the job might be awesome, but they're interview skills, they're, they're reading social cues or making eye contact, the, the traditional interview skills that we think of, those might not be so great. And then they don't get the job, even though they're perhaps the most qualified for the job. So can you take the traditional interview and replace it with um, asking them to do the actual tasks that would be required in the job, things like that? Okay. That, yeah. And I, I think that's, that's really good just because that can, if we clear, I mean, that's one of the biggest things, you know, with yeah. individuals with autism, there are some um, social environments that they're not as comfortable in. And, and they, there are some skills within the social environment that they don't necessarily exhibit at the same level as um, you know, uh, individuals not on the spectrum. Um, and if we don't deal with that out of, out of the gate at the interview phase, then that is gonna just very naturally select individuals out of the pool of possible employees where the individual could be very well skilled or adept to have the, to, to do the job. So instead of having an inter- interview process with certain individuals, maybe having them practice the skill on the job and, and seeing how they do is, is what you're saying. That's one thing. Yeah, um, and, ha- go ahead. Uh, yeah. And so this is where, again, the training of the employer comes in, right? So make the hiring personnel, the managers, the employees who are going to be working or hiring uh, others on the spectrum, make them aware of the many positive professional traits that employees with autism have and how, how they can foster an inclusive workplace that reflects that, high be, that belief in the high competency of all of their employees. Um, in, in regards to accessibility and accommodations, provide a menu of options rather than just saying, yes, we will have accommodations available. Provide a menu of options of accommodations, um, things like that as just, just trying to bring the social model back in here and seeing how you, know, how you can, increase your own um, desirability to an employee with autism as well. Because if people are more aware, they're going to, they're going to provide more opportunities, but then also be more aware of all the positive traits that individuals diagnosed with autism do exhibit, as opposed to just focusing on the, uh, the traits that are not necessarily don't fit within our society, not because lack of function, more so because of the way our society is built 
to a degree is less inclusive. We're, le- we're not as inclusive as we should be. Um, that's great. I, I think the other part that you mentioned uh, in the article uh, now and in the article was um, employers that did have individuals uh, on the spectrum em- at, employed at a higher rate also um, had some level of uh disclosure was a disclosure within their application where individuals felt more more com- was it that they felt more comfortable or was it there there was a um a, a higher probability that they were going to ask the question can you tell me about that with uh, regard to individuals um offering self-disclosure with with regard to their disability let me see um hold on don't remember that part thought that there was something in there about that there was something in there but i'm just trying to think i think okay let me just talk about um in regard to that question i think it comes down to um i'll talk about the question you asked me on in number 11 the perceptions and attitudes okay okay so i think that um in in to, to answer your question i think that the, the perception and the attitudes of employers makes a huge difference. So when, when the employers had a working knowledge of the needs of the individuals with autism, they tended to foster more successful workplace relationships. They minimized misunderstandings and increased communication. And so, yeah, so like you said, in an interview, if, they're, if someone were to disclose that they have a disability or if they have autism, then these companies were more responsive to actually implementing the accommodations because they had already been educated in, um, in the needs of individuals with autism. So having a company that has a high belief in the competency of their, their employees with autism, um, they have shown to have promoted or taken on additional job responsibilities for their employees with autism. They have supportive coworkers uh, reflecting a positive work environment and a positive experience in working with employees with autism. And this, all this leads to having a more inclusive culture in which um, employees with autism can thrive. And so employers who offer HR and staff training on inclusive practices and legal in, in requirements, high function. Okay, wait, can we start this over? Yeah. Um, so I totally like forgot what your question was. It was with regard to, um, uh, there was like a higher probability of individuals within these companies to disclose. Oh yeah, I did remember. That reading. they were on a spectrum. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, I, I don't, and I should have written this down. I'm not sure if it was as a result of like the comfort level or if there was like a level, uh, something within like their application that asked, I don't, I don't, well, I don't even know if that's legal. You can, you can ask if there's a disability legally, but you can't ask what the disability is. Okay. Okay. I don't remember that. I remember reading that. I mean, I remember writing that, but I don't remember exactly what. Um... That's fine. Um, oh, that's fine. We'll cut that out. Uh, with but, regard, go ahead. Yeah, maybe. Can, can you just ask me? Um, 
make, I, I do want to make a point, which is that employers who offered HR and staff training on inclusive practices and legal requirements and offered autism sensitive sensitivity and awareness training, as well as training related to effective interviewing of potential employees with autism, they were far more successful in hiring and retaining uh, employees with autism. Okay. And again, to the point of, of, of informing and just awareness and as a result of, of, of the awareness that can be built within companies, then individuals with autism then can be more successful. Right. Uh, so if a lot more companies did it, and, or if a lot more companies start working on this kind of uh, these types of initiatives now, then four, five, six years down down the line, they're going to be a lot more successful at hiring individuals and, and employing individuals. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so and I think right when we were talking in the beginning um, about employer concerns, a lot of it had to do with uh, legal requirements. Um, or, or how to provide the appropriate accommodations. And so once employers are trained and especially HR personnel are trained in these things, uh, they are a lot more at ease and they are able to hire and retain more employees with autism. And sometimes that, that training is happening internally, but sometimes what, what businesses are doing is hiring outside support specialists and then they feel more confident because they have that support specialist by their side at um so any question anything that comes up within this employee's uh tenure at at the place of employment they're able to reach out and ask their question whether it's, it's something legal something accommodation wise something uh social misunderstanding or miscommunication they have their own support system so that they can better support their employees Okay. I mean, it makes complete sense to have someone um, that is that specialist that can answer all of the questions to put you at ease. So if you just hire that person to begin with, then you're going to, or, or, you know, just uh, maybe have an outside consultant or maybe have a person within your company be the designated person. Maybe it's an HR training. Maybe the HR representative in a smaller company could learn more about, you know, you know, maybe a bigger company can hire out and hire a a consultant that's uh, doing, you know, doing that a hundred percent of the time, but even like a smaller company can, can have some level of training for an HR um, representative. representative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, honestly, it sounds like there should be some, some sort of like, I don't know if there's a, if what the level of, if, if there are any inclusivity laws, um, but it sounds like there needs to be some sort of requirement on the state side. If I was, if I was, if I was, you know, that, that's interesting, though, because, um, you know, a lot of employees with autism or any disabilities might not want to disclose their disabilities. And so how would you track that? I mean, I, I think that's fine that individuals uh, don't want to disclose. What I'm more so saying is that there is an ingrained training as a result of, of the training or maybe a law that's that's implemented or something where individuals at, a, at the HR level need to have oh, this level of sensitivity. Oh, yeah. yes, that would be awesome. 
as a result of having that level of sensitivity, then you're able, then you have that, to a certain degree, you have that skill and maybe you can identify certain traits to, so that you can work with the individual. They don't necessarily have to disclose. Right, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. That, that type of training can benefit all of your employees. Right. Exactly. Let's Um, Let's start this program. I, I had a, you know what, I had a, uh, an employee recently, um, where there was, there was some traits that, you know, were, that we identified as being possibly on the spectrum. And we, we really having all the sensitivities that we do, we went, we went like above and beyond to kind of try to figure out how we could do the placement and do further training and and help the individual uh be success successful but that's just because i knew otherwise i think there was there was other individuals um within the decision making process that weren't necessarily informed Mm-hmm. Um, or, or well-informed or well-adept to working with individuals or adult on the, adults on the spectrum, children on the spectrum. And so they weren't, they, when they identified the skills or the, the skill deficits, it was more so from the perspective of this person is rude, this person doesn't care, this person is untrainable, as opposed to thinking about um, this individual as a possible neuro neurodiverse individual or possible individual on the spectrum that, that that may have their own needs exactly yeah we we might have to be adept to um and so you know me being that person within within one of the people within that equation that could identify some of these skills you know i tracked it and i you know at every level (laughs) we try to work with the individual um yeah, so I, I, it. it was it was it was it wasn't easy. I'll tell you that much. Um, what? Uh, so okay. So in in general, what do you think employers can do now to prepare themselves to appropriately engage individuals with autism in the in in the workforce? Well, I think it's all about changing your mindset, which can be difficult to do but learning about the benefits that neurodiverse employees can bring to your workplace, reaching out to clinicians um, or support specialists who can support you in creating an inclusive employment environment so that all of your employees can thrive uh, within your workplace. I think that's where we have to go towards and it might look very non-traditional. And I think that's why I said it, it, changing your mindset is, is the most difficult thing to do, right? But I think that uh, the, employees with autism bring so many unique and specific skills that so many companies can benefit from. But until, until we educate ourselves as employers on how best to create a neurodiverse workspace and an inclusive workspace, we're not gonna be able to have access to these talented employees. Do so. I had a question here that's kind of oriented in the area of like equity, diversity, and inclusion. But even through this through this conversation, um, what I've what I've you know just thought about now was is this um, given that behavior analysts and 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 ABA companies are probably the most um, 
have probably have the highest, the, the, ha- the have the most intimate knowledge of working with individuals diagnosed with autism, right? Mm-hmm. And as far just even the experience, the sensitivities, and just um, us also systems that can be successful, can that can that can help individuals with autism be successful, mm-hmm. right? So we're we're good at it, right? We're good at helping people. We're good at. Um, you know, uh, we're, we have this knowledge base where we work with so many different individuals that, you know, we know how to make them be successful. And we have an intimate um, knowledge about uh, the, you know, autism as a, as a, as a diagnosis, right? Um, what do you think the ABA's in this ABA industry's place in all of this is within the social model of disabilities. What what I'm trying to connect is like, do you think as as BCBAs as as practitioners do do we have a responsibility in all of this um, as far as like the social model and creating awareness? Um, and if so, what can we do as BCBAs? That is a great question. Well, I think that I think that. I think that our BCBA and our ABA training tends to happen within a bubble. Um, it's and and that's probably similar to to any specific um, uh, educational topic area, right? But I think that it's important to just expand our education, and the best way you can do that is to learn directly from our clients. Um, and then, and then create a platform just like you're doing to amplify our clients' experiences um, to the rest of society. So we might be the experts in behavior, but our clients are the experts in autism. So if we want the rest of society to learn about autism as behavior analysts, we have, uh, like you're saying, we probably spend a lot of time, a lot more than the average individual with people with autism. So, so sharing those experiences and learning from those experiences, I think would be would be the best way that we can use our BCBA skills and knowledge to um, to connect with society and to educate society and also educate ourselves though on the needs of of people with autism by directly talking to people with autism. You know, and one of the things that I see um, on social media a lot is we are so obsessed with our techniques, our principles, um, passing the exam, um, and just, you you know, reinforcement, punishment, differential, you know, a whole host of things that, you know, all these tricks that we have, we're so overly obsessed as, as an industry, as a field, with these things we're in our bubble yeah and are not necessarily considering the individuals on the other side and and their experience because i don't you know i don't i don't really see it i don't really see it like i think there's a level of expression with regard to memes right like funny stuff mm-hmm. where it kind of dictates what you know people find funny or interesting or just kind of ironic or whatever yeah. i think that there is even and just even in the marketing that people do it's really aba focused but it's not autism focused um and i really think that um to be able to 
talk about the experiences that individuals have. We don't have to name them, you know, Mm -hmm. even in our day to day, you know, we can talk about our kids to everyone. We can, um, we can talk about like the skills, the wonderful skill sets that they have. Um, and just some of the, the the humaneness of the individuals with autism and and who they are as individuals, um, as opposed to just just looking taking the perspective of of like a job and you know an environment to manipulate. Um, right? Do they have these skills? If not, oh, what are their prerequisite skills? Okay, what are you know? No, there it's that's just your checklist of behaviors. Get to know the individual with autism. Yeah, get to know them, and then at the same time you know, talk about that, you know, because at the end of the day, as a result of being individuals that are so well-versed on, 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 on autism, it not necessarily maybe from an academic perspective, mm-hmm. more so from an experiential perspective, you know, yeah. because we know the people we're, we're doing so much work with people and, and families that we know, you know, how great individuals with autism um, are. And how many skills they, they have. As opposed to the skills, you know, that they, that they're not necessarily exhibiting or maybe some of the socially inappropriate, what we deem to be socially inappropriate as, you know, uh, exactly. Um, Okay, so let me ask, I think, uh, I'm gonna ask you one more question. And, um, and then um, we'll be, uh, we'll be done. Um, I did want to hit the topic of, of diversity a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of got away from me, but it's, it's fine. But I think this, this question is really important. Um, so, you know, just given the state of affairs, um, mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in our political world right now. So to you as an, as a South Asian woman of color, what does it mean to have, uh, uh Kamala Harris as a vice president elect? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I always knew that, you know, as a concept representation matters, you know? But to see a woman of color and that too, she's half Indian and I'm Indian, to see a woman of color in the White House, I didn't realize, I don't think I realized really what I was missing until she was there. Does that make sense? Like the next week I went to work and I I felt like I had a new sense of confidence and validation um, where just because I knew that this woman, Kamala Harris, I felt like she was rooting for, for my success. And I say that um, specifically in my workplace because I've been having some, some, some issues in my workplace. I, I work in, a, in academia, which is traditionally you know, a white male dominated field. And I've been having some, some issues there. Uh, and so just knowing that, that she was in this newly elected position to lead our country, it just gave me a whole new sense of validation that I didn't even realize I was missing before. Um, for my mom, you know, my my parents aren't that into politics or anything like that, but f- even my mom was saying, you know, she would never have imagined that the first person, the first woman of color would be half Indian. You know, we were getting calls from family and friends in India too like congratulating us and <laughs> we're like, what? Um, but yeah, I think everyone felt it from here to India. Wow, that's wonderful. Representation matters and that in itself yeah. is empowering. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's great. Um, okay, anything else that you wanna add? Um, just like overall? 
Um, I, I do want to add one thing, and that is um, if there's something for ABA, I, I, you asked me earlier um, about ABA practitioners and, and suggestions, and I would say that um, this is perhaps not on the traditional behaviors to, um, to work on, but I, I would try to incorporate self-advocacy skills uh, when you're thinking about transitioning to adulthood and wh whatever that may mean for the individual that you're working with, self-advocacy -adv skills are so important because a lot of times, you know, they hit that. I, I work right now in a, in a community college where they're seeing a lot of increase in students with autism. And once you're at the college level, you don't have the same type of supports or the same type of um, structure that, that you're that your teachers and your educators and your, your ABA practitioners are creating for you in an IEP, right? You're on your own and you have to be able to articulate your needs and um, figure out how you're going to get those needs. And sometimes there will be barriers that are not fair and people will not give you the accommodations you need. And so self-advocacy skills are so critical, I think. Um, and that's not you know something we necessarily think about teaching a student when they're young because they're relying on their parents more. But I think that while we are working with our with our clients in whatever capacity, that's an important skill to to teach. And so what you so what you're saying is you you're running into the lack of self advocacy skills in your work as a counselor. Yes, and also just maybe not lack of self advocacy skills, but just um, that's something that definitely I would place a high value on. I think it's a skill that will benefit. I mean, it would benefit any adult really, but any, as you're, you're going from having lots of supports to no supports at all, being able to advocate for yourself is, is so important with the, at college and within your employment, within your relationships. Because in school, no one, no one's really going to push you. You can, you have to find it exactly. on your own. You're an adult now and you're expected to, to do things on your own and figure things out on your own. And I think being taught how to do that at a younger age would be definitely very helpful. Knowing, knowing what you want and pursuing what you want. And how to pursue that. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes we, we, we focus we focus a great deal on compliance as a, and as, as opposed to as practitioners, as a field, I think, as opposed to um, taking in consi into consideration what the individual wants at the moment and, yeah. and work and, and working around that. I mean, kind, I guess kind of, might be in the future. And so like, how are the skills we're teaching them now? How are they going to benefit them 10 years from now? Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's really, 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 really important. Um, um, yeah, you know, and then on the long lines of that compliance stuff, I haven't, I personally haven't, I traditional, I think years ago, people used to write a whole bunch of like compliance programs. I don't know if people are still writing them in practice. I know that I don't really write them anymore. Well, I'm not really writing that much anymore, but even, uh, with regard with, uh, within like our clinical meetings that I, that, um, that I run, or even just talking to, to supervisors, I have a team of like, I think it's like 26 people that are at the supervision level, BCBAs and, and master's level clinicians. Um, and no one really talks about compliance, which is a, is a good thing on, on my side, because it, it shouldn't necessarily, it shouldn't 
it shouldn't be compliance that we're necessarily overly focused on because if we're overly focused on that, to your point, um, we're not necessarily focused on what the individual may want. And if we're overly focused on compliance, can we be focused on the self-advocacy portion? Are two, are both those like c- contradicting, I mean, contracts, I, constructs? Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to say contracts. You, if you're, um, if you're over-focusing on compliance, then you're kind of creating a sense of dependency on um, whatever authority figure is giving you a certain command, right? Right. Following that command. And then you're going to be at age of 22, you're all of a sudden not getting these commands anymore and you're on your own. And you, and you don't have the history, like that reinforced history of pursuing right. what you want. Right. You're Which always, is you've, up until now, you've been told what, what you need to do. And all of a sudden it's, well, you're in the real world now where no one's going to tell you what to do. And, uh, what now? Bye. What now? Yeah. And, and even that self-advocacy, these self-advocacy skills would also fit in very well within employment environments, within community colleges, like you said, or within college, because you can pursue what you want as in within an employment environment, you can request a raise or you can request more hours, or you can re, you can request an adjustment of, yeah, of the schedule. And that essentially is going to make you more successful within the workplace. Okay. That's wonderful. Um, that's all I got. I think that was good. Thank you so much, Daniel. That was, those are really great questions.